Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. On today's Deal Deep Dive episode, we are joined by Sal Buscemi. Sal has quite the track record when it comes to the world of finance. From starting on Wall Street to raising $30 million by 29 years old for his first fund, Sal currently is the CEO and co-founding partner of HRN LLC, a private multifamily investment office. As well, Sal serves as the CEO for Dandrew Partners Capital Management. Now let's welcome Sal Buscemi. All right. Welcome back to the Deal Deep Dive episode of the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm Trent Werner, joined by Sal Buscemi. Sal, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to get into starting a fund, which is something we don't talk about often here. Sal, before we dive into how you start a fund, for those of us that maybe don't know a whole lot about you, how'd you mm-hmm. get started in real estate and who is Sal Buscemi? That's a good question. I struggle with that every day as far as the former. However, I started in this business doing something that a lot of people don't do. I started working on Wall Street and it's actually pretty interesting. And I write about this in one of my books that I was actually pre-med in college going to a university in New York called Fordham. And I graduated from there as a biology and chemistry major. However, the problem I had, Trent, was that I passed out holding a fibula in the cadaver room during my internship. At that point, you start to make certain life decisions of, is this really for me or not? And there have been other gross things that I've seen, but nothing really hit me like that where I needed smelling salt. The doctor I worked for, he actually had a brother who just made partner at Goldman Sachs. And he said, look, this isn't for you, but I think you should talk to my brother. He just made partner at Goldman Sachs. I think you would be a better fit for something like that, talking to him. At the time, I didn't know. I was like, I'm not going to go to Johns Hopkins. I'm not going to go to a med school. And it turned out to be the better road. And through then, I was working out on a lot of the things that happened as a result of the last time we saw interest rates rise in the late 90s. And it's when I started during the partnership days, but it's a skill set, you know, like any other technical school, really, where you learn the spirit and the culture of raising capital and investment banking and really like getting a leverageable skill set that you're able to bring into other things. And, and that's why I think we're going to talk about starting funds. I was very fortunate at the age of 29 to have raised $30 million from a Park Avenue institutional money manager. And at the time, we were the kitchen sink for Bear Stearns. We wound up buying all their whole loans, not anything like the big short where it was all synthetics and things like that. It was just the whole loans, like the kitchen sink, the loans against like two to four duplexes to some condo. I mean, it was a whole mix mash of stuff. But I think we'll get into a little bit of the structure with that, but it's no different than what we're seeing today. And then from there, now, mm-hmm. HSN or HRN LLC, 
co-founder and CEO, correct? Yeah, correct. So this is interesting. So a lot of what we do today and a lot of what transcends from real estate goes into other things when you're raising capital for private situations. And I'm a value-added type of guy, not value-added in a way where I am looking for something as it relates to class A to class B multifamily, but more or less, we're starting to see a lot of distress right now. And when people are getting outbid on those assets, those lower quality assets, you know that you're at a top. And a lot of the families that I've known for a while, it's actually an interesting story. They all had a gateway into life sciences through philanthropy. And a lot of the families that I've spoken to really, really loved it that they were able to get into some of these life science companies. And the only reason why I was able to do that is because some of the founders who I managed money for, were life science CEOs. They made a lot of money in life sciences. And they said, Sal, you should turn your guns on us. And sure enough, it's been a great collaboration. I have two partners who are very, very well connected in that space. We've done other things such as SpaceX. We've done some AI. And it's really just a function of the reputation and doing what we say we're going to do. We are actually going to be going into other stuff, Stripe. But in real estate, we already have some of our things in a row that we're able to see. And we're starting to maybe get back into industrial and logistics again in December with a prominent family in New York that owns about 9 million square feet of the stuff. So that's the type of stuff we like to do. We're direct investors. We're equity investors. And we only invest in world-class companies, whether it's a real estate deal or a founder. And the way you determine that is how much experience they have. If a founder has been through many exits, you want to invest with him. If a sponsor has been through two real estate cycles and has audited financials, that's someone who you want to talk to. That's someone who you want to work with. And that's really why we've been very protective of our track record, because that's all you have at the end of the day is you're only as good as your last show in Vegas. <laughs> I like that. It sounds like you've done quite a bit of different capital management, investing, and a little bit of everything on the big industries that we have here in the world. How did you get to the point of raising, you said $30 million by 29 years old? Yeah. So I have a personal issue. My father passed away when I was working on Wall Street at 24. And I said to myself, before I'm 30, I want to do something pretty aggressive, entrepreneurial, not going to friends and family, but just leveraging the skill set that I had acquired. I did write about it in my book, Investing Legacy. And the point of it is, is that it takes a lot of persistence and you have a lot to prove. And there's a lot of maturity at that point that comes with it as well. People are always looking at you and you have to think about it when you're raising capital. If you're in real estate, the second rule of real estate, the first one is location, location, location. And that's even more so today about environments and neighborhoods being safe. But the second one that everybody learns after it's too late and they lose everything is that you'll always be raising capital. You should not be in the real estate business if you're not raising capital. And to too many people, it was like, well, I can get easy bank loans. I can personally guarantee this and then I can syndicate the rest. That's fine. But there's going to be a time where you're going to have to put together a fund structure because banks aren't lending. And that's exactly what happened to me back when I was 29 years old. What time period was that? I was around 2007, 2008, right after Bear Stearns hedge fund blew up that was trading a lot of the synthetics that these mortgages were linked to. It was sort of like the summer of discontent, I think, in 2008. And then after that, everything just came apart. So you were doing this during a time where not a lot of people were. Yeah, exactly. And I had probably about 30 doors shut in my face because people were thinking, well, you can't short the housing market. Well, <laughs> look at what happened. I mean, there was a period of pain between 2008 and 2009. And what people don't understand is that you're in a highly leveraged game right now where there's very little, and I think, capitalism in the mortgage markets anymore. Everything's contingent upon low interest rates, and that adversely affects values. I think, not to get off tangent, but when we're looking at Powell, he's not the same Ivy League, Ivy Tower academic. He's more of a deal guy that came out of the Carlisle Group. So he's going to inflict pain to make sure he's right-siding the economy. And he's done an interesting job doing that. But this is cycle, and, and you have to understand, most investors 
understand too that trees don't grow to the sky and everything over time always matches out. But now's the time where there's going to be a lot of opportunity, I feel. So with that fund that you started, what was the investment strategy with that fund? It was structured as an equity facility and we went and dried and have Thankfully, I was able to negotiate no money into that deal. Usually there's like a GP co-invest. I didn't have to do that, which was amazing. But that reflects in the terms too as well. And remember, I was at what we call at the time an emerging manager. For me, they were taking a huge risk on me. But I would source these opportunities. They would come to me. We would price them. We would say, this is what we can get the entire portfolio for. I'd show it in front of the investment committee to them. We've had shared discretion. And at that point, the money would be wired out. Okay. I'm assuming that fund is now gone full cycle. Oh, yeah. I had like a four-year life on it. Yeah. Okay. After that, I guess let me backtrack one more question. With that fund, was it solely you or did you have other partners? That I were had helping? two other partners who were helping at the time. That was great. You know, I had some gray hair on there that worked on it. And then I had someone else who was pretty good compliment. But it was more or less me who was the front man raising the capital for this fund, putting it together. Everybody's got a role. And if you don't have one person who's constantly raising capital or interacting with investors, then it really doesn't work out. I don't care if it's a fund or a syndication or whatever. Yeah. And how come you didn't want to start off with a syndication model? That's a good question. It's a function of my network. It's a function of my, if I'm living in New York City and my rent's only like at the time, $1,200 a month for a studio, it was much easier for me because of my background and my network to go to Park Avenue route Mm -hmm. across the street that it was to syndicate. And when you're syndicating these portfolios, you have to use a fund structure anyway. But I was thinking to myself, yeah, I could start out using mom and pop money and everything, but is that really going to get me to the scale where I need to be when you're taking down $30 million portfolios and things like that? So just leveraging my network and where I was in New York, it seemed that's where you start out doing it. Now, if I was buying like you know a class A industrial building, then you would syndicate that. You wouldn't use a fund or institutional money really for that. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through off-site professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. Obviously, at a young age, you're going through a pretty intricate process, raising $30 million, starting this fund. What was the big takeaway for you going through the initial capital raise? Not when you started investing and stuff, but when you were going through that initial capital raise during a time of turmoil. I had taken some advice from people who were older than I were. And what I did was, one of the things he told me is that you're young. Most guys are seen as having egos who are young, and that is true. He said, you've been successful, but be humble, bury the ego, and you'll go a lot further. It's a form of emotional intelligence when you think of it. But I was at the point where I'm there to learn, but I was also very hungry. I was on top of these people. And there was a lot of follow-up too. I think a lot of people today, I mean, they're trying to get into the business. They're doctors or 
whatever mortgage brokers and they just hit the forward button on a deck for a tech deal and they expect a fee. I'm like, first of all, you're not registered. Second of all, you have no discretion or no understanding of how this works. Don't send me any of this stuff. So you really have to prove yourself out of the back as coming. And I was fortunate to come out of a very strong position coming out of Wall Street as a top firm where there's known for minting managers that have done well. And we carried that along too. I actually traversed across the country following a former partner at Goldman named Steve Mnuchin, who bought IndyMac Bank. And I was actually in Las Vegas after that. And we got another, I think, $20 million from an institution I've known since working in Wall Street, who said, Sal, I get it. You're a smart guy. Here you go. And we had the same structure and we were rolling, but only we were buying commercial property at that point. From previous conversations that I've had with people that have maybe had businesses or invested in businesses and then got into real estate and now do a little bit of everything, it seems like at the end of the day, all of the maybe the deal structure is different, but all the underwriting and capital raising and all that stuff seems to kind of line up. Is that correct? No, I think the problem is, is that a lot of people don't expand their skill set. If you're coming into this business as a real estate entrepreneur or you're fundraising, you have to understand that you have to work on your sales. People hire, get hired and rated on Wall Street for salesmanship. That's why they make the big bonuses. If you think that you're going to get rich by just hiding behind a spreadsheet and not talking to anyone, you're going to fail. You got to develop a personality. You got to go out and talk to people, but you also have to be known as a person that instinctively, if, if I see a deal and I know that there's a way that it can go wrong, is Trent going to be the guy who has the character and the intestinal fortitude, for lack of better words, to turn it around and make it right? And that's what I'm really looking for is the character. And a lot of people, they feel as though, well, I'm really great at modeling and I can really explain this in an economic scene. Yeah, I mean, a model is a vacuum. The whole perception of models, both in finance and fashion, is to manipulate and lie. That's really what it is. I mean, there's a lot of people who sold deals on a 23% IRR return. What are those models are today? They're in the garbage can because nobody is actually hitting those returns. They're just not real numbers. You have to learn salesmanship. You have to learn how to communicate. You got to learn how to tell a story. Think about it. People will remember the entire storyline for the Star Wars trilogy, but they don't know any of their biometrics. They don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about how much money's in their bank account, really, unless they're really anal. Nobody remembers numbers. Nobody remembers yesterday's weather. And that's the whole point is that you can't shove something down someone's throat if they're not numbers focused. Let someone else who's good at the numbers look at that. You wind up selling the story. Given the current market and given the market that you started your kind of trajectory in when you got out of Wall Street, what do you think someone that's in a similar position to you would or should do right now? with interest rates spiking, that kind of thing? I don't know what interest rates have to do with it, but I also think that you need to sharpen your axe. And if you don't know where to start, you should start by raising capital for other people who are much more credible than you. There's too many people who go into it with the ego and they're like, I'm going to buy this multifamily and I'm going to turn around myself. I'm like, the hell you are. It's two time zones away in Cincinnati. You live in Salt Lake City. You have three kids. Okay, At some point, the connections and the flights and the weeks spending an extended stay making sure that the general contractor's paid because he had to get his kid out of jail or something. I mean, that's a people skill that a lot of people don't really have the intestinal fortitude for. For you, if you really want to start out and you really want to be successful quickly, you're going to learn how to raise capital around other people's projects. And by that, you mean placing capital with other general partners? Correct. Yep. That's a good nugget that not a lot of people think because a lot of people nah. think, hey, I want to buy a 10-unit building and do it myself. But They want the ego, the prestige, but the problem is, Look at where they are today. Yeah. So Sal, let's talk about your book a little bit because I know you're an author, right? Yeah. That's kind of a big deal. 
It is. I mean, it depends. In some cocktail parties, it's more impressive than at others. So, <laughs> but yeah, I've written three books, and there is a book that I want to put out for your friends that I'm actually going to give away. We'll talk about it a little later, but I'll just get into it real quick. I wrote the first book, and if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see that I posted something today where. It's actually one of the most expensive books written in real estate because it had to do with private lending because of all the stuff we were doing with Bear Stearns and also some hard money funds that blew up and fraud and all sorts of stuff, bankruptcy. And then people said, okay, Sal, this is great, but how do you start a fund? So I wrote a book called Raising Real Money. And that talks about the fund structures and how to do this and and really the best practices for someone who's an emerging real estate fund manager. It says aspiring, but really means emerging to a fancy Wall Street word for new right? New Jack. You're an emerging fund manager. And if people really want to learn about that, we've put together a free audible download that you can get by going to raisingrealmoney.com. It's a red cover book. You'll see me on there. But it talks about the best practices on how to do this and how to put together a fund in a way where it's structured, where you're not sort of learning by default. This is not something you can pick up and learn like the piano. There's a lot of people. And really, I mean to say this, people are investing in your deals they come across as being maybe smarter than they actually are. But Trent, you and I both know they have no idea what they're investing into and they're totally trusting you. It's a character game, especially when you're dealing with like the syndications and everything. When I'm talking to family offices who are mostly emerging and a family office to me is defined by at least $100 million in investable assets because there's a cost to managing it. You know, if you're just a rich guy, <laughs> you know, if you don't have that, but there's a whole mindset that changes after you hit the nine figure mark. They're looking to put their money into things, but they're not looking for the same return profile. They have different needs and wants. And you need to really understand that going into it. Not everybody's looking to make some money. I can't tell you how many times I see this and I'm like, this is just annoying. And these people get blocked on LinkedIn too. So you got to really understand it. And if it's, you know, especially in the case of a family office, they're not looking for the class C to B multifamily value add Indianapolis. They're looking for something that they can increase their status with by showing to their friends that they've made it and they're more connected, smarter, and more attractive than their peers. And that's why actually, in so many words, people own professional sports teams. I have a kind of an off-topic question. I mean, sure. raising money, raising capital has a lot to do with your sales ability and the ability to tell a story. Yeah. How would you go about, if you were going to invest in a fund or place money in a fund as a limited partner, how would you kind of fact check what that story is? The one thing I love about this, and I talk about it in my third book, Investing Legacy, is that you can't really hide today. What you do is between LinkedIn and you know you can always call references and people, but usually if it's someone who's coming around, you can always find out what's going on. And I think the way to do this, and a lot of people don't do it because they don't think it's polite, but we don't really have this problem because the people who we invest into have a lot of experience. They're not first-time sponsors. They're not first-time GPs. We're not tuition. We saw this coming and I've been sharpening the X for a year and a half for this. You got to do your due diligence sort of like an ex-girlfriend or an ex-jilted ex-lover. And if you look at it that way, that's really what due diligence is. I think a lot of people think due diligence is like looking at a spreadsheet and nobody knows what the spreadsheet. I, I can't tell you how many LPs I send a spreadsheet to. And they have no idea what the hell it means. And I said to them, I'm going to send you this model, but who's going to look at it? Well, I am. No, you're not. You're a dentist. No, you're not. All right. Stop lying to me. Who are you showing to? Well, my brother-in-law, he works at Payne Weber or like Raymond James. I'm like, so is he qualified to look at a waterfall on a fund? And he's like, yeah, he works. I'm like, no, he's not. And I said, look, don't waste my time. I'll send you this, but this is the last shot you get to invest. And then that's it. They usually invest. 
the point is, is that nobody knows who to ask. And if you know who to ask, then that's great. But again, it goes back to the networking components that I like to talk about. And it comes down to, look, I want a sponsor that's been through at least two cycles. Okay. I want audited financials. If your track record's so good, you should pay $6,000 have someone audit it. And then I also want a meaningful co-invest. So 5% is cute, 10% is thoughtful. Anything more shows conviction and the deals we're in. These are real operating families that have companies that throw off a tremendous amount of cash flow. They're putting in 50%. We're putting in 50%. I like that. We're Harapasu on that. But when you're getting into like the multifamily stuff and the other things, you're dealing with sponsors who are making bad decisions because they're looking to make a check. They'll put people into a deal. They might do things that they shouldn't be doing only because there's the allure of a fee there and the way most of these funds are structured. Nobody gets paid unless funds are deployed and that could cause problems as well. So basically you're saying do as much due diligence as you can, but have some qualified like people. in jealous your Jealous ex-lover, <laughs> like a jealous. I mean, every CEO we invest into, I know everything about them and you want to get into it. Even the marriage and everything, you want to know everything about it. Yeah. It's not invasive because it's your money. And you have to understand, is this guy going to wake up in the mirror and know how to achieve value if there are any hiccups that come? And I've seen people go into divorces and they absolutely get destroyed and they just become worthless. And they just don't have the emotional intelligence to do this. It's not just managing the money. It's making the best decisions. What is really behind that? And if you look at the best fund managers out there, they're very patient, but they're also not swinging at just anything. The most valuable opportunities are the ones that are never really marketed. They come to me through other families that are investing into these opportunities. Real families, not broker dealers and drags that say they're family offices. That's a whole other conversation we can have later. But real families that I've known and say, hey, we're making an investment of a million dollars into this company called Thrive Bioscience. It's led by us and some other people. Do you want to come into it? Sure. But then you get into it and you say, well, it's been the founder's 15th exit and eighth unicorn if he plays his cards right. And everything starts to check out because you know people in the industry who can tell you. I mean, people gossip just like they do in high school. And that's the inside intelligence that you need to make sure if you're going to have a good investment or not. You don't want to find out later that, yeah, the guy that was in charge to be a project manager of your rehab is you know, an alcoholic and he hasn't been able to put it together for a while now. That's not what you want. And past history usually portends the future results. And that's good insight in itself right there. You're not only doing due diligence on the sponsors, but you need to know information about everyone that's involved in the deal that's managing your money. I want to know who the other investors are. Are they sophisticated or are they dope? The smaller investors are always the ones who are the loudest and the most pain because they feel as though they're entitled to something. Whereas if somebody gives you a million dollar check, you're not going to hear from them really. But it's also your obligation to interact with them, to talk to them. We're asset managers, but we're much more boutique and much more hands-on with the families because they expect that interactivity. But when you start getting into like the $25,000 tickets and you don't know where this money's coming from, and they need it back. They have some sort of an emergency where they have to pay the light bill or something. You got to know who is this, right? Who are the other people? I think in any investment, whether real estate or venture, the cap table is the sole of the investment. It's the sole of the company. And you can tell anyone about the quality of the asset as to who's on the cap table. And you know the same could be said with the board being its conscience, but as it relates to real estate here and considering this is a real estate show, the capital table will tell you all you need to know about whether they have good investors or not. Because the guy that's writing only a $25,000 check, if anything goes wrong, is he going to make a capital call or not? That creates other opportunities, but that's subject for a whole different conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sal, since it is a real estate conversation today, what do you think 
the real estate market in terms of placing capital should look like in the next 18, 24 months? I think it's going to be brighter in 12 months than it is right now. And again, this is just me talking and you know, I'm just one guy and I look at things very frank and very pragmatically. I think that we have not seen the beginning of any distress right now. I think we're in the beginning stages of it, the early innings. People are still locked up on yesterday's values. And the only people who are selling right now are the ones that have a bank put a gun to their head or the equity is stressed and the equity investors are putting a gun to the GP's head. I don't really see much transactions happening right now. And everything's at a standstill because there's just not any capital. Freddie Mac is having some issues too politically from what I've read where they're not going to be making a lot of money and they're sort of restricting broker access, which is never good for capital markets. But it's going to be the private capital that comes back, whether that's in the form of you syndicating debt or you syndicating equity. Everybody knows how to syndicate equity, but it's much easier to syndicate debt because everybody understands what it's like to have a mortgage and the rights and remedies if you don't pay a mortgage. That's another tip for people too. If they're looking to raise money, there are people out there, but you got to show them where their money goes and how does it come back to them. And that's something a lot of people are not able to do, especially now. I love it. That's great insight. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Did I miss anything during our conversation today, Sal? No, I think people really want to understand what it's like to run a fund. They should get the Red Book. I'm going to give the Audible copy away for free if they go to raisingrealmoney.com. That's raisingrealmoney.com. But I also think that I'm just going to leave it off on this, is that whatever you do in this business, the most important skills that you can have and the highest calling is raising capital from people. Biblically, it goes back to Moses. You're asking someone to part with their wealth in order to build something or some sort of an initiative. It's always been a process. And I would tell you to really be very, very relational about it. If you come from a background, say, like digital marketing and email and copywriting, you have an advantage over other people because you should be communicating with these investors all the time, not necessarily selling them stuff, but building the relationship. Because today, interactivity is the new currency trend. And if you've seen enough people for a long time and you write a book and you give them a book and then you call them up a year later and say, hey, I haven't caught up, but you know, I have something to talk about, that's appropriate. At that point, that's fine. But I think you have to stay on top of these investors. And if I was just starting out, I would just find investors who are interested in this, build a community, and then find an opportunity that you're not running, but someone who's much stronger than you as a GP that you can co-invest into. You get the experience, you get the track record, and people respect you for being well-networked. That's golden itself right there. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.